This episode is brought to you by IT Revolution, whose mission is to help technology leaders succeed through publishing and events. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. In this episode of The Ideal Cast, I am so delighted that I have on Dr. Steve Spear, who has been a mentor of mine ever since I first took his workshop on high velocity learning at MIT in 2014. His book, The High Velocity Edge, is one that I've studied over and over, over the years. You can easily spot it in any pile of my books because nearly one third of the pages have been dog-eared because something on that page struck me as especially profound or brilliant. He is famous for many things, but he's probably most famous for writing one of the most downloaded Harvard Business Review papers of all time in 1999. It was called Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System. This was based in part on his doctoral dissertation that he did at the Harvard Business School. And in support of that, he worked on the manufacturing plant floor of a tier one Toyota supplier for six months. Since then, he's extended his work beyond just high repetition manufacturing work to engine design at Pratt & Whitney, to the building of the safety culture at Alcoa, to helping create genuinely safe healthcare systems and he was part of the U.S. Navy initiative to create high-velocity learning across all aspects of the enterprise. I believe Dr. Spear's work is extremely important. Just as command and control leadership was a hallmark of the 20th century, I believe that dynamic learning organizations will be the basis of the 21st century. In this episode, I learn about how his journey of high-velocity learning started, where that journey took him, and then explore with him his mental model of dominant architectures, structure, and dynamics, and how it can explain so much of why organizations behave the way they do. He also talks at length about what conditions must be present for organizational-wide learning to occur, and how it allows the achievement of amazing goals and to dominate in the marketplace. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Gene. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Uh, Steve, I took the liberty of introducing you in my words, but Could you introduce yourself in your own words and describe what you've been working on these days? Yes. So do you want to go from the the beginning to the end or from the present back to the start? (laughs) Let's do the beginning to the present. How's that? All right. Let me just anchor on where where we are today. I, I think I've become a monomaniacal advocate for the scientific method employed by everybody about everything all the time. And what I mean by that, if you think about the scientific method, it sounds sort of egg-headed, pointy-headed, whatever else, you know. But fundamentally, the scientific method requires that before we take an action, we make a declaration, a prediction about uh, what action we think we're going to take, the conditions in which we think we're going to act, and the consequences of what our actions will be in those conditions. And then it asks us to seek feedback very fast, very frequently to find out where we're wrong. I think we all do that naturally. You know, no one walks out the door and just uh, goes through their day rolling dice, flipping coins to figure out (laughs) what they're going to do with their next step. We're all constructing predictions about our actions and their outcome. And I think in most cases, most of us actually learn in some fashion from the surprises when our actions yield outcomes which weren't uh, expected and weren't desired. I think we do that naturally. The thing is, and this makes reference back to your point about command and control, As uh, experimental as I think most people are outside their professional undertakings, inside their professional undertakings, this whole notion of predicting for the purpose of finding flaws in thinking 
through the experience of flaws in doing, that's suppressed. And uh, consequently, because it's suppressed, uh, it kind of locks us into repeating actions based on the same mistake and assumptions. You know, so much of your works have influenced so much of my thinking for nearly a decade. Uh, it's not at all a joke when I say that the publication of the DevOps Handbook was delayed by nearly a year, over a year, <laughs> because after I took your class, I realized there was so much that was missing from it, and I felt it needed to get integrated into yeah. the book. So before we get into that, I wonder if you can rewind the clock and share with us how you ended up working on the plant floor at a tier one Toyota supplier yeah. and end up having your book forward written by the famous and recently departed Dr. Clay Christensen. Gene here. I now realize I should introduce who Dr. Clay Christensen is. The Economist described him as the most influential management thinker of his time. Among many other things, he was the author of the famous 1997 book, Innovator's Dilemma. He coined the phrase disruptive innovation while he was a professor at the Harvard Business School. And if you read Steven Spears' book, High Velocity Edge, the first thing you will read is what I believe to be the most incredible forward ever written <laughs> by Dr. Clay Christensen. And I will actually read it to you later in this interview. So there is a certain irony that uh, my work is really meant to help people create value quicker, easier, better. <laughs> than they would have otherwise. So the fact that it delayed the delivery of your book by over a year, um, I think we can all, all chuckle at that. And I'm grateful for it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yeah, nothing like having a manuscript sit on your desk for another year to really make you feel comfortable and at ease. But it, 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 in terms of where this all got started, so uh, it, it actually goes back more than 25 years. I had graduate school in the late 1980s when uh, American manufacturing was facing this existential threat of challenge from Japanese firms. And when I got to MIT's uh, Sloan School in 1989, the, the number of courses that were labeled Japanese management of some form of technology, could just be plain technology, data technology, accounting technology, whatever else it was, it was just uh, a good portion of the course catalog was framed that way. And, and the simple reason was that Japanese firms had demonstrated their capacity to generate and deliver a whole lot more value faster, easier, into the marketplace than anybody else. And I was one of a, a very big cohort of MITers and others who were uh, curious as to what was going on there to bring lessons back here. And part of that involved taking classes at MIT, making a summer long and then a year long venture into Japan to see what I could learn. But that, that was some background and motivation. And the way I ended up at Toyota is as I worked through my um, first pass at graduate education and these periods in Japan, I still wasn't satisfied that, it, that I had gotten to a meaningful answer as to what was different there that explained the experience here. Anyway, uh, a fantastic opportunity came up. Former MIT professor created, opened, and then kept open a door while I dilly-dallied in my decision-making. <laughs> Kent Bowen, who was one of a, a critical mentor to me, um, Kent created an opportunity for me to stay in the graduate student space, which is uh, tremendously luxurious, <laughs> giving you time to dig deeply and just dig around looking for something that seems interesting and important. And uh, in conversation with Kent, we said, you know, it seemed odd that here you had Toyota, which had been the um, subject of so much study in the 1980s, 1990s around lean manufacturing. And there were all these really energetic and honest efforts to learn what Toyota had been doing, and yet there was no second Toyota. 
they were still crushing their competition in terms of manufacturing quality, productivity, time to market with new designs, profitability per unit. Pick any metric relevant in the, the auto industry for the major makers. And Toyota was the leader or number two on all of them. And so we had this opportunity to approach people at Toyota and say to them, look, you know, you have been the subject of so much study and you've been the object of so much imitation or flawed imitation. What is it that um, you're doing that other people have missed? And uh, the response got, we got back was, well, we can't tell you. And we were like, what do you mean you can't tell us? You've been open to your major competitors. Why can't you tell us? And they said, no, 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 you, you don't understand. It's <laughs> not that we wouldn't tell you if we could, but the way we learn this is it's a very immersive, learn while doing experience. And it's not that we wouldn't tell you, just that we don't know how. But if you're willing to um, learn our management system the way we learn it, you know, see whatever you find out. Well, anyway, this was sort of like that scene in the Matrix where the guy is offered a green pill and a red pill, and then he regret because uh, it, it turned out learning it the way they do it required this uh, deep karate kid immersion. Uh, with um, very little explicit direction in terms of what the basic thinking was and how it worked, but uh, lots and lots of um, hands-on trying to solve problems and largely being told, and largely learning by the fact that you try to solve a problem and your mentor would say, well, you know, you might want to try that again. Never telling you what the right answer was or even why your answer was wrong, only you might want to try that again. <laughs> and anyway, that process went on uh a good six months at a tier one supplier, and then at dozens and dozens of other Toyota and Toyota affiliated plants that I visited over the course of, I don't know, three, four, five years. Can you uh, connect the dots to your dissertation, Clay Christensen, and where that took you from there? Yeah. So when I first went into to Toyota, if you think about the uh, the literature that at the time about the company, the assumption was that Toyota had uh, tools for production control that was superior to people, other people's tools. If you see a lot of what lean manufacturing became was sort of a, almost a checklist or recitation of uh, various tools that if you had more of them, you were more lean. If you had fewer of them, you were less lean. <laughs> and uh, so based on that, I just assumed that what had happened was that there were some critical tool or tools that people had missed. So I went looking for tools. And, you know, I'm doing this uh, Karate Kid immersion, you know, go give this a try, not try that again, try, you know, <laughs> oh boy, I right, try it yet again. And what I was coming to appreciate is that for all the trying and, uh, you know, iterative learning I was doing, I was never being introduced to a tool. What I was being introduced to was a way of thinking and a way of acting, which required more and more this idea that I make declarations about what I was expecting so I could be surprised by the reality I encountered. And mm. to be honest, look, I didn't realize that at first through my own experience. I think I'm uh, more dense than not and too dense to have appreciated it just on my own. But one of the things that really struck me is as I started uh, visiting Toyota suppliers, both in North America and some in Japan, concurrent with my own immersive experience, I would ask people if they would show me and explain to me what work they did and how they did it. And what I discovered is that in most places, when you ask someone uh, about their work, they'll just show it to you. Oh, you know, here's the objective I have, and here's the uh, sequence of steps and the tasks for which I'm responsible. And what would in, invariably happen in the Toyota setting 
And, and I'm talking about shop floor associates, you know, no advanced education, maybe some technical uh, training on the job, et cetera. They, they would give me almost like a dissertation and say, well, Spear son, you have to understand. I've been asked to do such and such a test, put a seat in the car, weld something, form something, whatever else it is. And uh, ideally, ideally, um, I'd be able to do that in a defect-free way with no wasted action, right on uh, demand when asked by my customer immediately in the unit of use that they needed. That would be the ideal, but there was a problem. And uh, in order to resolve that problem, here's uh, what I did to modify my work to close the gap between um, what I was currently doing and that ideal. And uh, I said, oh, so can I see that? I said, oh, no, no, you can't see that one because when I started using that one, there was another problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to resolve that problem, I created this other creative action to try and close the gap on the ideal. I said, oh, can you show me that one works? I said, oh, no, 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 I don't use that one anymore because <laughs> when I use that one, there was a problem. And, and at that point to the conversation, when uh, they really started building up an emotional momentum on the, they, they pull out a, a binder and start flipping me through past versions of how they did their work. And if that work had a, a, had a lifespan more than a few weeks, there might be dozens of pages in this binder. And, I, and they could walk me through the series of experiments they had conducted from their first conception of how to do the work uh, through the layer upon layer upon layer of corrective action to close the gap with this ideal of uh, defect-free, on-demand, safe, immediate, and so forth. And as I'm listening to these, th this wasn't from people with PhDs. This wasn't people with advanced <laughs> degrees trained in uh, the life sciences. These were people working on shop floors, explaining how they had reduced spatter from a welding process, how they had uh, reduced smoke from the same process. Anyway, what started to really strike me is, um, and we put in that first paper you referenced, what Toyota had seemed to do with its management system. And I think we said as uh, they had taken work, which most people thought of in the very physical terms, and uh, used it as the platform on which to build a community of scientists, mm. where um, everything was subjected to this uh, combination of prediction and feedback. Now, that, that for us was the huge aha about uh, what separated them from essentially everybody else we had observed or participated with. Steve, that is so great. So I'm going to read you part of the uh, end of the forward that Dr. Christensen wrote. He said this, I count having been one of Steve Spears colleagues and advisors to be one of my foremost credentials. I hope from the pages of this book, you'll be able to learn from Steve even a fraction of the valuable insights I've gotten as I've worked with him. In his field, he has no peers. Dr. Clayton Christensen. So could you describe Dr. Christensen's uh, involvement in your work? Yes. Yeah, so I was uh, tremendously fortunate as a graduate student to have two really fantastic champions for my work, for the ideas in the work, the evolution of those ideas, and just for my development as a human being. Uh, mm -hmm. To put some context on this, I met Clay right when I arrived back into graduate school, this for the second or third time, and uh, Kent Bowen also, who is uh, enormously influential in my development. I was, I don't know, still in my late 20s, early 30s then, uh, unmarried, no family. And um, these guys not only coached the development of my intellectual capital, but really had 
very big impact on me as a, a human being and, you know, ultimately as a husband, a father, member of the community. So like I said, I, I'm blessed in so many ways to have um, Clay and Kent having been in my corner over uh, decades at this point. So, you know, as far as how I think I connected with Clay, if you think about his work on disruptive innovation, mm. you know, he, he takes a look at the incumbents in a field, those who are really cranking along solidly in a groove. And he's trying to explain why it is that those folks who are so solidly in a groove get disrupted by these much smaller, less resource-rich firms. And his explanation goes something like this, is that the incumbents get into a groove and uh, they start chasing ever more rewarding, profitable, prestigious things that are in that groove. And as they do so, the groove becomes somewhat of a rut. And um, they try and do more and more of what they've already been doing. And in doing so, And Clay has the technical explanations about the construction of business models, this and that. But fundamentally what happens is they they lose sight of things that are outside their group. And in particular, the needs of uh, people who aren't being satisfied by the work being done inside the groove. And, you know, what Clay is really describing is as organizations become more and more dominant in their uh, chosen field, they become less and less aware and less and less curious about what's going on around them. So anyway, that I think is Clay's message. And I think he carried it over not only to uh, the importance of being curious about what's out there professionally and commercially, but I I think Clay lived a life, which was really testament that we should do that as individuals, you know, and and make sure that when we're in our own personal groove, we we have an eye towards um, those who are out there whose needs aren't being satisfied. So anyway, that's, uh, I think, an appropriate tribute to Clay. In terms of his connection to um, my own work, there were two. One, I think, was this issue around curiosity, right? Because Clay's explanation for why um, incumbents got disrupted is that they uh, became incurious and consequently vulnerable. And here I was studying an organization which was almost uh, energetically paranoid in cultivating curiosity um, across its workforce. And I think the other thing that um, really uh, caught Clay's eye is that uh, we had opportunity to investigate a really bona fide and significant anomaly, which was uh, the ability of Toyota in, in a very, very competitive industry, not only to have created a lead for itself, but sustained advantage over decades when, in fact, the levelness of the playing field should not have allowed that. So... Uh, You know, a a huge gigantic insight for me was this uh, creation of a workforce in which everyone was part of a community of scientists. I think the other big insight is when I started looking at the healthcare field and trying to understand. So the community of scientists explains why Toyota was so successful. Steve, that is so great. I love the phrase, when your groove turns into a rut. I'd love to revisit that, but only after this. Uh, Let's talk about how you took what you learned at Toyota, where everyone is a part of a community of scientists. Where did you apply that beyond just Toyota? So if you go back to the original motivation for looking at Toyota in the first place, it was this anomalous ability to create far more value with far less effort than anybody else. Hmm. On On any given day, you know, the effort in versus the value out, the ratios were just crazily good compared to what was typical in the industry. 
As I was completing my dissertation and coming to this conclusion about community of scientists subjecting everything to this aggressive feedback to reveal faults in our thinking that became expressed as faults in our doing, uh, both Clay and a uh, doctor student, not a medical student, but a doctor who was a student at the school, started raising my awareness to what was um, a growing frustration in the American uh, healthcare delivery system. When you consider the huge, huge innate talent of the people in the field, the sophistication of the education and training they receive, the resources uh, committed to the professional undertakings, basically we should all have wellness and health, uh, the equivalent of having pet unicorns. I mean, it should be off the charts. And, and in fact, the system doesn't achieve anywhere near its uh, theoretical potential. It's actually a source of often great disappointment in terms of access to care, cost of care, quality of care. So around 2000, when we um, started looking into healthcare, reports were coming out of the Institute of Medicine documenting the hundreds of thousands of Americans who died um, due to avoidable causes in hospitals each year. Gene here. In High Velocity Edge, Steve writes about the risk of getting hurt or being killed while in a hospital. The probability of that happening is higher than flying in a commercial airliner, taking a walk, riding a bike, parachuting, hang gliding, or even base jumping, where you jump off of fixed structures such as a building or a cellular base station with a parachute. These statistics are horrifying and show the dangers that exist for patients inside of the incredibly complex world of modern healthcare systems. Okay, back to Steve. So anyway, Clay and this doctor student, this fellow John Kanegi, said, hey, the stuff you're learning at Toyota about converting everything into a feedback generating experiment, would that work in healthcare? And, um, you know, I said, I don't really know, but perhaps we can run an experiment. Now, it turned out that there was an opportunity to run an experiment at a, a small community hospital here in the Boston area, part of the uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center larger uh, network. We started working with the, the staff there on things like access to beds, medication administration, overburden on nurses. And, and what did you know that if um, you started encouraging people to um, take for granted that they were entitled to an ideal experience of delivering care in an, this ideal fashion of defect-free, on-demand to match the needs of patients, et cetera, in a way that's safe for doctors and nurses and pharmacists, technicians, et cetera, that if they started with that and actually had uh, some compromise in their ability to have this ideal experience, then they should call that out as a refutation of some foundational belief and um, investigate the source of the disappointment and make it take a corrective action. And we started to get some positive results in this very, very small care setting. Now, out of the coincidence of uh, simultaneously working with folks at Alcoa and the uh, tr tremendous civic-mindedness of Alcoa CEO Paul O'Neill, we got invited to present what we're learning about Toyota. And from this tiny little pilot here in the Boston area, we had a chance to present what we were learning so far to a group at the uh, that was assembled by what was called the Pittsburgh Regional Healthcare Initiative. And I remember I went with this fellow, uh, John Kanegi and Kent Bowen down to Pittsburgh one day at the invitation of Paul O'Neill, and we presented to dozens of community leaders, both from the, uh, the medical centers and elsewhere. 
we started explaining just the you know the basic thinking we discovered that you know anything designed by human beings is going to have flaws so um best when you design it design it in such a way that the flaws are uh, quickly evident and when the flaws um make themselves evident respect that as a bona fide signal of opportunity to get better and we just you know walked them through and what did you know um we walked through this explanation and in this room of dozens of people two stood up and said you know, we've tried it just about everything else. And uh, I guess there's no harm in trying this too. <laughs> so uh, they said, can you spend a little time with us to help us see how this uh, applies in practice? And amongst those two or three people who uh, stood up that day, one was Gail Wolf, who's uh, chief nursing officer in the UPMC system. There's another guy, a cardiologist named Mark Schmidhofer, who uh, not only became a friend and a colleague, but a co-author. And a third guy who stood up, whether it was in that room that day or later on, was a fellow named Rick Shannon, who's gone on to great things at University of Pennsylvania, University of Virginia, now Duke. They invited us in to see if the basic thinking we had been absorbing from Toyota and uh, testing out in a Boston suburb, if it would work on a large scale. And, and it did, but I'll, I'll pause there. Now, that's great, Steve. In fact, those are some of my favorite parts of your book, High Velocity Edge. Before we depart this topic, I feel like you have to share what some of the uh, findings were and what the, some of the amazing results that you were able to generate with the team. So I'll tell you what, the, the healthcare experience, particularly in Pittsburgh, was a source of another um, really important insight as my work evolved. And, and so just to reset, right, we went to look at Toyota to try and understand the source of anomalous strong performance. And the conclusion we came out of that was uh, feedback. You know, the more feedback you can generate in a situation and the better you, you are at reacting to that feedback as bona fide signal of opportunity, the better off you are. That ties into the comment about uh, creating a community of scientists. So, um, you know, kind of that, that was our explanatory theory for success. Working in healthcare gave us the opportunity to construct an explanatory theory for failure. And what we had observed was clinicians, you know, so highly motivated to act in ways that were in the best interest of their patients. And, and look, we're all in the midst of this whole COVID thing now. Um, you know, we're all, you know, it, many of us at least are fortunate enough that we can have a place, a comfortable place to which we can retreat and we can talk to our friends on uh, video conferences like we're doing right now. But, um, you know, we're all impressed by the, the healthcare providers who haven't shied away from this situation and they're uh, putting themselves in a high risk, high hazard environment, you know, more hours than they ever sign on for to take care of other people. So anyway, you know, we're working in Pittsburgh and it's just constant reminder of um, the tremendous altruistic character of this workforce. And yet, they're struggling to um, get the whole to be anywhere near the sum of the parts. You know, consider the parts, their innate ability, the resources, et cetera. And we started to ask the question, well, what's going on here, which is so different from the Toyota environment where the whole was so much greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. And what struck us is that, um, and perhaps because of the aspiration to meet other people's needs right away, what we found is that healthcare workers, when they encountered a problem, 
rather than taking a pause, a reflection on the um, expression of the problem, the cause of the problem, and taking time to construct a, a meaningful corrective action to prevent the problem from recurring, they worked around the problem. And um, that had all sorts of, and again, you have to think about the contrast, right? Because the motivation, the incentive to work around problems was so positive. There's a person who needs my attention right now, and I'm going to do whatever is required to deliver on what I thought my promise was to them. But the consequence of this workarounds on, on a cumulative fashion was just so corrosive because uh, what it meant was if someone encountered something that was difficult and worked around it, the difficulty was still in the system. But now it was in the system, but it was still invisible to somebody else. And when something else got worked around, it was still in the system, but invisible to somebody else. And sometimes those invisible uh, hazards, tripwires, tripped somebody up, or sometimes they got worse and worse and worse and individually caused um, great harm or somehow combined in just the right way to cause great harm. But it was this relentlessness of workarounds in order to maintain an operational tempo that uh, really caught our attention as um, both an explanation for the underperformance and a very striking, almost one-to-one contrast with this idea of design work with tests built in to reveal error. And when it's revealed, deal with it. So great. There's so much there in terms of the corrosive, uh, cumulative uh, harm caused by daily workarounds. But let's put that in a box for a moment. And let's go back to the notion of when groove gets turned into a rut. Right. What Steve revealed about what goes wrong inside of healthcare systems is so interesting and compelling. I promise we'll get back to it later in this interview. So one of the things that I'm so grateful to you for is being able to have these uh, working calls with you once or even twice a week to better understand some of these core concepts that have dominated your thinking for decades. And the first concept that really caught my attention was a notion of a dominant architecture. I think this is really verbalizes what Dr. Christensen's work was in terms of uh, that dominant architectures do what they're designed for. Can you explain um, dominant architectures to us and why they're so important? Oh, sure. So if if you think about um, the early stages of any enterprise, um, it typically starts with uh, some number of people, maybe small, maybe large, recognizing that there's uh, an opportunity, that there's a need in the marketplace, there's a social problem to be solved, whatever it is, there's an opportunity um, to make something better for somebody else. And um, what exactly it is that's wrong, eh, it's not so clear. What exactly the nature of a solution is, that's also not clear. What exactly it is that uh, that group of people have to do to um, uh, create and deliver the solution, that's also not clear. So essentially, you don't know what the problem is, you don't know what the solution is, and even if you knew any the first two, you don't know how to generate the solution. So <laughs> what that invites is a lot of experimentation, whether it's, you know, formal scientific method experimentation, or perhaps it's um, a more trial and error experimentation, but it it invites testing ideas. Eventually, you hope that you start getting answers, right? You you have a better articulation of what the uh, need is or the problem is that has to be resolved. You have a better uh, articulation of what the solution is that'll be successful in uh, satisfying those needs. You have a better articulation of what work has to be done by whom, in what way, 
bring that solution into uh, or to create and deliver that solution. And, and when that happens, when you start converging on answers to those critical questions about uh, what need, what solution and what approach, you can start getting clarity in terms of roles, responsibilities and relationships. So when we get started on something, Gene, you know, I don't know what you do. You don't know what I do. We don't know what Ann does, but we e each try something. But eventually things start to emerge and there's a, a role for Gene, a role for Steve, a role for Ann. And once we have those roles, um, things start to uh, solidify, which is a good thing, right? Because what we're doing is we're reducing uncertainty. We're increasing clarity. We're giving direction. You know, you show up on the job, you know what you're supposed to do and why. I know I know what I'm supposed to do and why. All of that. But coupled with the All right. So let's just pause. That's all the positive side is that the architecture. And what I mean by architecture, I'm drawing upon um, stuff I've talked with Clay, Carlos Baldwin, Steve Wilwright and others, Kim Clark, is this idea that um, an organization like a technical device makes assignments. Uh, in a technical device, it's a function on the part. In an organization, it's a responsibility on the person. And that is we start getting clarity about what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. An architecture for our relationship starts to emerge. And again, that's a good thing because it's a source of uh, efficiency, of efficacy, of uh, multiplicative impact, et cetera. One of the examples that you gave me to make this concrete was how these dominant architectures uh, are at first absent and how one is created. You gave me the example of at the dawn of the automobile as you're trying to design right. and manufacture one. Uh, it wasn't even clear what the dominant architecture should be. Can you give me the example of how vague it was? In fact, the example that you gave me was, uh, you know, the steering column. In fact, right. even before you can talk about the steering column, you have to first talk about the transmission of power to the wheels. Is it is the metaphor one of steering going to be like a tiller in a ship? Is it like a buggy <laughs> when you right. with the reins? Walk us through the example of why the lack of a dominant architecture merging is was so critical for auto manufacturing design. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was Kim Clark's uh, research on the topic that most influenced my thinking. And, and he recounted exactly what you were saying is that when people started thinking about taking um, motors or engines and using them as propulsive mechanisms for vehicles, there wasn't any kind of agreement, you know, was it going to be uh, battery powered, steam powered, uh, some kind of combustion? The, the nature of the source of the mechanical power, that wasn't even clear. The uh, the metaphor, um, is this going to be a boat on land or uh, <laughs> a, a version of a horse-drawn carriage? And, and we know a horse one because uh, young terms are horsepower and not sail power as, as our uh, metric. But um, that also wasn't known. But eventually what did happen is that uh, people tried and tested ideas. Some worked better than others. The ones that worked less well got discarded. The ones that worked better, um, you know, kind of in a Darwinian thing of variation, selection, retention, they got retained and then uh, replicated. And what came, came out of that was the, the, uh, the basic structure of a car, which we're all familiar with, which is internal combustion engine somewhere in the front or the back, a, a drive shaft connecting that to the wheels, a body around, around that, and uh, an interior. Now, once that architecture started to emerge, you could get the clarity of role and responsibility that you and I were discussing. That um, you can have styling do something which was uh, not independent of, but dependent in a predictable fashion, <laughs> dependent on and uh, dependent with um, design, engineering, manufacturing, engineering, production, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why back in before uh, Henry Ford got his start, 
you know, the productivity in making a car was minuscule because uh, you didn't have sort of an Adam Smith clarity on division of labor, roles, responsibilities, et cetera. And as this dominant architecture started to emerge, it allowed someone like Henry Ford to build a moving assembly line. And with that, the huge, huge um, increase in efficacy, efficiency, productivity, and output. Oh, this is great. And, and so that dominant architecture allowed for a division of labor, allowed teams to be able to work uh, independently, or at least with, the, with known dependencies on each other. Right. So those are the great things about being able to build around or build within a dominant architecture. Let's talk about some of the downsides of when the dominant architecture actually conspires to prevent the achievement of uh, objectives in daily work. Right. So, you know, as we were talking, the dominant architecture is a response to unanswered questions in terms of what should we, what should we be doing and how should we be doing it? Once we start getting answers, uh, we come up with, you know, we've been calling it dominant architecture. Other people might call it routines, business processes, et cetera. But it's the same idea, which is roles, uh, roles um, responsibilities and relationships. Now, the, the thing about that is that the whole reason we've gotten to these legacy business processes as dominant architectures is because we generated answers to, prob to questions. We generated solutions to problems. That, that raises the issue. What happens when the problems change? Hmm. When um, the question we answered in terms of what to do, the question we answered in terms of how to do it, what happens when those are no longer good answers because the questions, the problems in society have changed? And we need different answers in terms of what to do and how to do it. Well, if um, we try to depend on the dominant architecture for that, the dominant architecture will still want to generate the things it's always generated. It was built to generate those things. It's very good at generating those things. It's not tuned to generating these other things, which um, uh, we actually don't even yet understand what they are and, and how to... Um, achieve them. In fact, uh, in the healthcare example, you, you talked about the daily workarounds and the heroics and people really trying to fight the system, go around the system. That, in my mind, really says this is what happens when uh, the dominant architecture is impeding. What, what are they working around? They're really working around the dominant architecture. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, Gene, I, I think that's a, a fantastic statement. You know, if you think about the, the dominant architecture, which guided how medical care, medical practices were established, how much medical training still is delivered, it, it goes back to when medical science was really in its infancy. And um, we depended on the, the model of the, the doctor who was entitled to lay hands on. And, and for my... Doctor friends, I understand that is like a profound privilege in their profession that they can provide value to someone through the laying on of hands, both for the purpose of diagnosis and treatment. And, and back in the day, and probably until the at least the 1960s, maybe into the 70s, the notion that there was the doctor who was the hub of care delivery, because it was the doctor who could lay on hands and draw upon his or her expertise to... Uh, assess, diagnose, treat, and everything else was in support of that interaction between the patient and the doctor. Well, if that's your um, way of thinking, then it gets reflected in how you organize. So you organize a practice around a doctor or a few doctors. You organize hospitals around um, departments which are framed in terms of not diseases, processes, procedures, but around medical specialties, You know, a department of pulmonology, cardiology, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then you create uh, social relationships within those same institutions, which have as their model, this once dominant architecture of the physician as the hub of value creation. And he even trained that way, right? Which is, you know, as people go through, they go more and more specialized into a profession with less and less perhaps understanding and context of what adjacent professions do. All right, well, here's sort of the, the curse from the blessing. In the last uh, 30 some odd years, medical science has advanced exponentially. Mm. And society's ability, it's, you know, hypothetical ability or theoretical ability to assess, diagnose, and treat has gone simply off the charts. The thing is, in order to take full advantage of the medical science we now have, the single individual physician can't be the sole point of contact. And I encourage you to think of even on your next visit to the doctor, if they ever come offline and you see them in person, think about the... Um, large number of people who will do something value creating for you, even if it's just for a routine exam. And forget about if you're going in for something serious and something complicated. But if that's what the science wants, which is this highly integrated, interactive, complex system, but the dominant social architectures, dominant organizational architecture is still around this uh, physician as a hub, it's going to force people to work around firefight, cope, kind of work under the radar to execute on the roles and responsibilities and relationships the science wants and the technology wants, but which the organization doesn't necessarily endorse. Steve, so great. Notions, constructs like dominant architecture helps one see something, at least in my case, see something that I didn't see before. And, and so let's talk about the components of what makes up a dominant architecture. In your book, High Velocity Edge, there was actually one sentence that really caught my attention, which is the notion of structure and dynamics. And I remember uh -huh. asking about this at, in a conference room in the, in the Sloan building at MIT and being utterly dazzled by how simple it was and yet how it could powerfully explain so much of our collective experience and reveal some surprising insights. So can you describe briefly what structure and dynamics are and how it could possibly uh, describe all the ways that organizations actually work. Yeah, connecting this question about structure and dynamics to dominant to architecture as dominant or otherwise, the structure of any system involves the um, inherent answers to a number of questions. You know, first of all, what's the purpose of the system? You know, why does it exist? What value is it going to create? And then, in order to uh, deliver on that purpose or promise, there have to be questions about assignment of responsibility or assignment of function in a technical system, but uh, assignment of responsibility in an enterprise. And it's not only assignment of responsibility, you do A and Steve does B and Ann does C, but that um, with that responsibility, there are relationships in terms of dependencies that in doing A, you're doing A because B depends on A and, and in doing B, I'm doing it dependent on you doing A, but also because Anne is dependent on me doing C. All right, so um, now we could restructure that. We could say, you know, that it's actually uh, Steve doing B is not dependent on Gene, he's dependent on Anne, right? Which is a different structure or Anne is dependent on Gene, whatever else. So it's this mapping of roles, responsibilities and relationships, which gets us to the structure. The structure, 
has a lot of determination on uh, just the dynamics, the way in which the system behaves right off. You know, so for example, we say C depends on B, which depends on A, then uh, then the dynamics are going to be that A creates something, gives it to B, and B absorbs it and creates something else and gives it to C. All right. There's that. So just to stay on the topic of structure, um, what is mapped to what, who is connected to whom is deliberately or inadvertently going to have a very profound effect on how a system behaves on its dynamics. Anyway, let's pause there and uh, we can pick up if you want. No, I love that. Uh, I mean, essentially what you're saying is that structure is uh, very concretely how we organize the teams, the interfaces between those teams. In the software world, it is the architecture we work within. And yep. dynamics is almost everything else some of which leaders can influence through cultural norms and so forth. But what I find so dazzling about this is that um, so much of how the system behaves is really dominated by the structure that we create. Is that an overstatement? No, no, I I don't think it's an overstatement at all. So uh, you mentioned teams, so I'll make um, reference to uh, one of my favorite books, which is uh, Team of Teams by Stanley Mm. McChrystal and some of his colleagues. And, um, you know, that... I highly recommend that book. And very early on in the book, uh, I just learned that you're in the acknowledgments of the book, oh, yeah, which yeah. I only learned like a year ago. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I met I met that group when, and they said, "Oh, yeah, we're working on writing a book." And I said, "Well, I, I, I've written a book. Maybe I could take a look at your manuscript." And so they were very generous, let me see the manuscript, and I sent back some comments. And as a thank you for that, I got in the acknowledgments <laughs> section. It's a terrific book. General McChrystal, Stan McChrystal, describes his experience taking over the Joint Special Operations Command, which was tasked with um, defeating al-Qaeda in Iraq. And al-Qaeda in Iraq was a bunch of nihilistic uh, sociopaths. It was terrible what they were doing. And what he found is that when he went to the headquarters, he found all these really fantastically trained and incredibly motivated specialists, you know, whether it was the... uh, Army Rangers who could, you know, descend out of helicopters in the middle of the night and raid a place, or the CIA analysts who could pour through electronic and all sorts of other media in English and Arabic and this and that and tribal languages and whatnot to make sense of what was in there. And then the Navy SEALs and other uh, special operators who could act out in, uh, you know, very, very remarkable ways. He said, you know, here I had, I had responsibility for all these fantastic people with such a uh, important an ethical mission of stopping this nihilistic sociopathology. And he said, and yet we weren't winning. And he he started to try and figure out why that was. And he he realized that the uh, the pieces weren't configured into a whole appropriate to the mission. So the Rangers would go out and do their raids and they'd collect all sorts of potentially valuable intelligence and, you know, tote bags and whatnot. The CIA analysts wouldn't necessarily go through it in a, in a fashion time to when it arrived. And then the Navy SEALs would work off of information provided to them, but again, also out of sync. And, and so what uh, General McChrystal describes is trying to take all these individual teams and align them towards the common purpose of beating Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So working off of that mission, working backwards, saying, well, in order to beat Al-Qaeda in Iraq, there are certain things that um, people on the end, you know, the pointy end of the spear have to do. What do they need? They need information to know where to go and when to go and why to go, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, the people who give them the information, what do they need? Well, they need inputs. Well, who's going to go out and collect those inputs? And he starts creating process across all these um, different, what we'd say in um, commercial setting, across all these functional um, silos to get everyone aligned on uh, meeting the immediate need of the downstream value creator, but making sure that um, every step along the way from far upstream to far downstream was highly aligned with the mission of the organization overall. Right. And so to use the language of structure and dynamics, there was something profoundly unsuited uh, in the before world where each there was almost an over parochial uh, nature to each one of the functional silos. In fact, I love that uh, phrase from the book. The squad was a boundary of which everyone else sucked. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> right, impossible right, right. for these teams to work together towards a yeah. common objective. And the transformation to one that was really focused on mission orientation. So the in some ways, the structure was unchanged, right? The Navy's SEAL still reported up through the Secretary of Navy, right? And the Army right. Ranger still reported through the Secretary of the Army. And yet, uh, as it gets towards you know, the mission on the ground, they're working in a very different manner. Can you, can you talk to that? Yes. Yeah, so your reference is fantastic. And it gets, uh, it makes me think that we identify heavily with people with whom we share common purpose and common effort. And if we don't have common purpose or we don't have common effort, our uh, sense of identification is no longer of uh, us. It's them. And uh, General McChrystal describes exactly that, which is that the divisions weren't just Army and Navy, that even within the guys in, in, in the Navy and the SEALs community, <laughs> that they would draw divisions between which class they were in. You know, oh, you went to a <laughs> summer class. I went to a winter class. Well, you guys had it easy, you know, because we had more hypothermia. Or if we were in the same <laughs> class or the same season, then what boat were you in? Oh, well, you were in that boat. Well, you know, everyone knows the truth about that boat. You know, I think the root cause of that was that whether we're defining by boat, by class, by service, um, we identify by what we have in common. And so a big part of what he was trying to do is come up with some kind of uh, common unifying thread, which had to do with mission and the role each of us had in the essential role that each of us have in the achievement of that mission. This episode is brought to you by IT Revolution, whose mission is to help technology leaders succeed and their organizations win in the marketplace through publishing and events. I'm so excited about the 13 books that IT Revolution has published to date, including The Phoenix Project, DevOps Handbook, Accelerate, Project to Product, and Making Work Visible. In 2020, the list of amazing and important titles continues to grow. This year, we've published one book with two more scheduled for later in the year. Agile Conversations by Douglas Squirrel and Jeffrey Frederick it's a fabulous book on how leaders need to show up in order to get the outcomes we need to bring everyone on board. It's not just to get buy-in, but to get everyone fully working together towards our common objectives. Later this year, Sooner, Safer, Happier by John Smart will be released. It's a surprisingly breathtaking look at modern leadership practices. Until I read it, I didn't realize how much of it was not explicitly addressed in organizational learning and leadership books in the last 50 years. And... The Delicate Art of Bureaucracy by Mark Schwartz. It's brilliant. Do I need to say more? He talks about how bureaucracies are such a major part of what drives daily work and how it can be tamed and enlisted to support all of our most important endeavors. Learn more about these books at itrevolution.com. And I 
think uh, one of the most vivid examples, I think the story that he tells in the book was they went from sighting to capture in less than 40 minutes with the, the people on the front lines, enlisted people, uh, intelligence agents, being able to make all the decisions necessary you know, to actually make the capture, whereas in the old world, it would have taken weeks, potentially months, you know, to get the right, 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 right. to actually get the plan approved, uh, let alone executed. Yeah, yeah, and when you go from sighting and and the time frame is uh, anything but minutes or maybe hours, there's no capture to the sighting <laughs> in that in that operating environment. Uh, so and and Gene, don't we get the same thing in, 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 even in the commercial world where you know our equivalent of sighting is uh, the identification of a market need, and uh, our uh, equivalent of capture is that we're able to uh, marshal the resources, organize them in the right way that we can actually deliver a solution onto that need in a way that's, uh, you know, mutually beneficial. And if we're slow, either in the siting or the capture, the commercial equivalent of that, we just say, oh man, I wish, I wish I had seen faster. I wish I had acted faster. And those folks who are, um, more agile and adroit, they, um, they do the commercial equivalent of siting and capture and reap disproportionate rewards for doing so. Absolutely. So let's go back to the team of teams example. I think there's so many things that we can sort of reveal through the lens of structure and dynamics. So we talked about some of the concrete things that they changed structurally. Uh, they were sort of matrixed into these mission teams, right? So they're instead of a parochial focus, they had one towards uh, mission focus. And, and then uh, let's talk about some of the dynamics. I remember one of them was General McChrystal. One of the things he would do is uh, he would assemble these war rooms uh, where Everybody who was relevant to the problem, they were assembled in one place as opposed to offices. He had the habit of putting conference calls on speakerphone so that everybody could hear. What are other things that change in the dynamics um, that we, we can see through the Team of Teams examples? Yeah, so if you take your description about these uh, common displays, common conference rooms, et cetera, I think what they were trying to achieve there is give everyone visualization of where they their part fit into the whole so that's one thing but also because uh of issues related to real-time display everyone on the conference call etc not only was there um visualization of where hypothetically their piece fit into the whole they could also see where their piece was ill-fitting and that could be uh a trigger for and inf- and uh, a source of information about what corrections needed to be made to uh, get the pieces to better align. And, and, and Gene, I think that starts getting into the dynamic piece, right? Which is the structure is that the process flows A to B to C. And, uh, you know, by saying it goes A to B to C and not A to B to D back to C or whatnot, that establishes, you know, uh, certain cycle times and lags, et cetera, et cetera. But then to add on to that, on, to layer on top of that, this uh, additional feedback dynamic, which is, all right, we've made a prediction about uh, what our relationship should be. And uh, if they are that, we'll achieve our mission. And then to provide the feedback to tell us we're wrong, then um, that creates the opportunity to uh, start the self-corrective, self-improving motions, which um, absence of feedback wouldn't, wouldn't allow. Steve, I'm thinking about one uh, example in, in the book. I mean, I think uh, they were in so many situations where they were ready to start the raid, but they were missing one component. I think it was like a special type of helicopter or drone surveillance. And uh, after having to scrub these missions, they were able to actually inject a, 
uh, a change in the rules uh, in terms of taskings. So that would free up this particularly scarce resource. That, that that's, uh, seems like one example of one of these kind of yeah. self-correcting elements in the story. Does that uh, resonate with you? Yeah, it, it sure does. Look, look, Gina, it's not um, peculiar to uh, special operations commands in Iraq. We did work with uh, DT Energy, you know, the provider of electric and gas in Detroit and you know large parts of Michigan, and. Um, they had field service crews who, you know, got their assignments, which was to go out and either do uh, residential calls, business calls, you know, safe dig kind of things. These uh, guys and gals would get out to their trucks ready to go, and the trucks weren't ready to leave. Uh, they were missing parts. They were missing supplies. They were missing tools. Perhaps the engine didn't start because, uh, you know, a, a Michigan winter, the engine block heater hadn't properly operated. What they did is they started saying, well, you know, Something that seems as banal as whether the truck will start or not is having huge impact on the efficacy of our organization. And so what they started doing is, well, we got to change the dynamics. What we have to do is uh, get out of uh, a mindset where um, our field service workers have these problems that just sort of have to suck it up and instead start getting into a situation where at the first sign of difficulty, the plug isn't working for the engine block heater. These supplies are missing. I can't locate this or that. We're going to have that realization of uh, deficiency trigger an escalation that in turn will um, result in a corrective action. And for what it was worth, the, the, the ratios were insane. So when uh, the folks working at some of these service stations, this is where the places from which uh, trucks would originate in the morning and crews would originate in the morning. Um, from the time they got started at these service stations, within a few months, uh, they doubled and tripled the productivity of their crews without any added hours or overburden on the crews. They just they were able to do twice and triple as much work in support of the needs of the community than they had when they started. And, and again, it always it was about shifting the dynamic from um, just a accept and absorb problems to use problems as a trigger to make things better. Mm. Awesome. And and so there's another uh, example uh, in the sort of the from citing to capture where how decisions were made were changed. The, the notion that the people uh, working the problem could make decisions, uh, the decision making was pushed as far down the organization uh, as possible. Would you call that structure or is that part of dynamics? Yeah. So, look, you start to think about why is it necessary in some organizations to have a situation which is local to you and to me, but we've got to go way, way up to get permission to deal with it. And I think that gets into a problem of visualizing the process in the enterprise. That if, let's start off with the positive. If you know your role and the relationships your role implies, and I know my role and the relationship my role implies, then both of us can have... Uh, pretty good conceptualization about what changing our behavior, what impact it will have on the system. Mm. And, and all right, so that's one thing. And, and, if, and if you and I both have a very strong visualization of how our part fits into the whole and, a consequent, and consequently we have a, a very strong sense of how um, changing our behavior will or won't affect uh, the environment around us, then that gives us an awful lot of latitude to act and also to censor ourselves. And there are times that we think we have to act, but we realize that our action will have implications way beyond where we want to have perhaps second order deleterious effects, then we escalate. Now let's flip this around. What if we're working in an organization where um, 
we lack a clear visualization of the structure. I don't know how my part fits into the whole. I just know I have a part and I'm audited on the part and I'm checked on the part, but I don't know how it fits into the whole. If I have a problem, there's a lot of reason you don't want me to act in response to that problem because I don't know the unintended consequences of my actions because I don't know how my part fits into the whole. So I don't know how my altering the delta in, in, in my role will affect my relationships. So in that case, we have to um, escalate and escalate and escalate up through the bureaucracy till we find right. eventually someone who's got a, enough system perspective to say, Steve, that's okay. You won't screw with Gene if you make that change. And, and to concretely land this point, so what was present in the structure and team of teams that allowed the frontline workers right, uh, to be able to make all the decisions without having to escalate all the way up the chain? Yeah, so I, I think it gets back to what you were describing and crediting uh, General McChrystal and his colleagues with doing, right? Which is um, they created these various platforms on which people could see how they fit into the larger whole, um, the large conference room, the displays, et cetera. And they could also see how um, what they were doing was somehow compromising uh, the performance of the whole. And uh, with that in mind, their role in this larger system and the consequence of their um, actions or inactions on the performance of that system in ter terms of achieving its mission, then uh, that, that could give them latitude to do the local corrections that uh, improved how well they fit into the whole thing. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And so it occurs to me that one of the most concrete examples is uh, the Toyota and Encore, probably the most famous uh, tool right. in the Toyota production system. But let's uh, talk about that in the context of the dynamics of an organization. You know, one of the things I love about the, the parsimonious nature of structure and dynamics is how much we can describe what we see kind of in this almost uh, absurdly mechanistic setup, right? We have structure, we have dynamics, we have things that emit signals, and then we have things that receive signals. And there are things that we can right. do in dynamics that allow signals to be amplified. And there are things that we can do that allow that enable or guarantee that signals will be extinguished. Right. Uh, so our common friend, Dr. Sidney Decker, who wrote Just Culture, Safety Differently, and many other books, is credited for saying that a safety culture is one where it's safe to tell the boss bad news. So yeah. obviously, I think we can create a, a, a picture in our head of a dynamic where uh, we encourage people to describe that we're obviously ignorant and we don't have the tools we need to solve the problem at hand. And we can probably create an equally vivid picture of one where no one's going to speak up because everyone knows that the, the person who raises their head will have it lopped off. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, Gene, it, it begs the, the question taken to the absurd. If you're a leader, why would you want anything other than bad news? Hmm. Right. Because if you get good news, what does good news say? Good news says that the predictions you've made in terms of the objectives for your uh, enterprise the roles and responsibilities, the methods, everything's working. And, and, and essentially, good news says there's nothing for you to do, Gene. Everything, you know, the predictions <laughs> you made, they're, they're being validated in practice. And in, in fact, not only is there nothing for you to do, we don't want you to do anything because it can only make the situation worse. <laughs> so in, in order for you to have value as a leader, you actually need something wrong, some bad news, where you can engage in some um, collaborative, creative problem solving make things better. So look, now we, we, we can acknowledge that human egos and human psychology uh, being what they are, 
that uh, if our days are spent getting nothing but bad news, we would be crushed <laughs> by that burden. And so we have to give people good news because of uh, ego gratification, self-esteem, just positive feedback, et cetera. But, but really in terms of us as uh, value creators, in order to change and ha- be part of the incremental improvement, we need bad news, not good news. So, so I think there are three examples that you say are the paragon of using bad news, scientific thinking, feedback into our standard work. One was the Toyota production process. I love the example you gave of the Apollo space program. And when I say Apollo space program, I really mean Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. Right. And probably the work of Admiral Rickover. Can, can you talk about what they all have in common? What are the uh, the critical uh, components of uh, dynamic rapid learning? Yeah. So I, I think in the case of NASA accepting on itself the challenge to send a man to the moon and return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade, Toyota, the, the, the real articulation of Toyota's management system in the late 50s and um, the creation of the uh, culture within the Navy's naval reactor program, I think at each of critical inflection points, uh, leaders and I suppose everyone else looked at the challenge ahead of them and said, we're just not capable. <laughs> you know, it's kind of Wayne's world. Oh, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. But it, it re- really, that was the self-description. We're, we're not capable. So, you know, saying it quickly, you know, Toyota in the 1950s made its first venture into the, into the United States market with a car that was horrible. It was the Toyota that <laughs> fell apart. It rusted. It underperformed. And um, Toyota was uh, really inefficient in making a, an ineffective car. And at that point, they had a choice the Toyota leadership did of uh, blaming the quality of the workforce, the quality of the material suppliers, the quality of the capital equipment, et cetera. That was an alternative, but the alternative they actually took was to say, uh, the reason we're um, ineffective or inefficient making an ineffective car is we simply don't know how to harness the resources available to us better. And if we want to make an effective car, then what we have to do is uh, see the deficiencies in our knowing and see the deficiencies in our doing and uh, make steady progress from where we are to where we need to be. So that's the Toyota folks. You know, we're, we're just not capable. And the way we become capable is we learn uh, by recognizing our deficiencies. Uh, again, not to, to uh, focus too much on the tool, but the, the notion of the and on cord was that anyone on the front line uh, would be thanked for exposing an ignorance or deficiency yeah. for trying to solve a problem that the dominant architecture or the current processes didn't foresee. Right. That's right. I mean, basically the way the end on court works is that, uh, you know, Eugene have asked me, Steve, to do something. I can't. And I'm calling it to your attention so that the deficiencies in my doing become a reflection of deficiencies in your thinking, your planning, your designing. And we're going to use the deficiency in my doing, the bad news, as a trigger to uh, get together and try and improve on your thinking and my doing, our, you know, our thinking, our doing. And, and the way that's institutionalized amplifies signals within the system to self-correct. Exactly. Right. Let's go to the Apollo program. What are examples there of, uh, that demonstrate the learning dynamic inside the Apollo yeah. space program? So if you think about President Kennedy's challenge in 1961, you know, he said, all right, what we want to do is launch a rocket from the Earth, have it head towards the moon. When it gets to the moon, have some portion of that rocket descend to the moon, then ascend off the moon's surface. And then, you know, again, in some combination, bring those astronauts back to the Earth safely. And uh, 
you know, the folks at NASA said, hey, that sounds great. Have no idea how to do that, <laughs> but sounds like really inspirational, exciting thing to do. And so um, they organized a program where built on the premise of not yet being capable, they never or doesn't give the appearance that they sat down and tried to think their way to the right answer. You know, there, there was no sort of uh, conclave of NASA geniuses going into a room and coming out and saying, ah, this is what Apollo 11 will look like. This is how we're going to build it. This is what we're going to ask Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins to do. And if everyone follows um, our design intent, we'll get a man to the moon and return him safely to the earth by the end of the decade. Instead, what NASA did is they said, well, what's the first problem we have? And it turned out it was launching a rocket that did not explode and destroy its payload. <laughs> and, and they went through a lot of effort to solve for that problem and then figure out uh, once it's launched, how do you get it to land? And it was only after solving that first layer of problems that they uh, trusted themselves to ask Alan Shepard to prove the solutions they developed so far and take the first American manned flight into space. Again, it was 18 minutes, did in orbit, got nowhere near the moon, but it was the validation of the things they had uh, um, accomplished so far. And then as you and go Steve, through the it, Gemini program, correct. Yeah. Right. So, so we're not even talking Apollo yet, right? This is not even Gemini yet. This is Mercury. This is yeah, <laughs> the that's two right. program before the Apollo program. Yeah. Early 1960s ticker tape parade, all because the guy went up and took an 18 minute flight. <laughs> now you start thinking about the distances, right? Because the moon is uh, 250,000 miles away. And let's say Alan Shepard went 250 miles away from the surface of the earth. So he went one-tenth of 1% 1 there on a flight that was 18 minutes where the Apollo missions ran into, you know, beyond a week. So what he did in terms of order of magnitude was pretty close to zero. But you know what? Um, the starting point was zero. And this was actually a big accomplishment. Right. So it marches through kind of all the challenges that Mercury yeah. and then uh, uh, Gemini and then Apollo took through right. to, to be able to achieve the mission yeah. seemingly well, in one step. There were a lot of flights spread over several programs. We won't go into all the detail, but if you think about it, so you get Alan Shepard, first flight, goes up and he comes down. John Glenn goes up, he orbits a couple of times, comes back down. Then you go through Gus Grissom and some of the other astronauts, and then you finally get to Gordo Cooper, who takes a very, very long flight on Mercury and really is sort of uh, gets to the limit of human performance in terms of how long one person can travel in a space capsule before being uh, incapable. Then you get onto the Gemini program, which... Um, became the platform on which uh, a lot was learned, not about long distance travel, but long endurance travel, where crews of two could go up. And because it was crews of two, they could orbit, you know, not exactly indefinitely, but longer periods because someone could work, someone could rest and switch roles. And uh, once you had crews of two and longer duration, they could do some other practice, flying in um, formation, rendezvous, uh, spacewalks outside the capsule on and on. And then that picks you up into the uh, Apollo program where having built up a tremendous repository of knowledge about how to manage long duration flights, you can start asking questions about long duration and long distance. And again, not to, not to consume a lot of this with uh, just the nerd version of inside <laughs> baseball, you see the same approach on the Apollo program. You know, the reason it took Apollo 11 to land on the moon is because uh, 8, 9, and 10 had the, uh, the job of capturing a lot of the incremental learning that had to be pulled together so Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin could actually land safely and then come back off the surface of the moon. 
I think this is awesome. In fact, when one of our calls, you had this wonderful phrase, it took countless small steps that made it look like one giant leap, right? It was this incremental yep. learning and this dynamic of ruthless iteration to eventually get to Apollo 11. Yeah, look, um, Neil Armstrong gave a very poetic line when he said, small step for man, giant leap for mankind. It wasn't exactly, but it was fairly truthful, small step, because uh, when you ask the average person, who was Neil Armstrong and say, oh, he was the first American to go to the moon. <laughs> and and it, it's true, he's the first one to step there, but he wasn't the first one there. The crew of Apollo 10 actually had gone all the way to the moon. Uh, they had orbited the moon and they actually started descending to the moon. They got within 47,000 feet of the surface of the moon before they aborted their mission. It was planned abort, <laughs> you know, not, not, a, not a due to an emergency. And, and the reason for that was that that was Apollo 10. The crews of Apollo 8 and Apollo 9 had done a lot of the homework about how you get to the moon and, and a lot of the piloting necessary to descend successfully. So when Neil Armstrong said, hey, you know, me and Buzz, we took a small <laughs> step, not exactly a small step, but it wasn't a giant leap. What they had accomplished was the last 47,000 feet of descent, yeah. a little bit of walking around, and then 47,000 feet of ascent back to their rendezvous. And after that, up to that 47,000 feet on their way to the moon, and the everything from the 47,000 feet back had been done on Apollo 10 and previous missions. That's so interesting. So that was really kind of the increment of the batch size, <laughs> right? Of the learning right. that between Apollo 11 and Apollo 10. Uh, yeah, and so, you go back uh, to, you know, we, we were joking about Alan, Alan Shepard getting a one-tenth of 1% of the entire <laughs> mission accomplished. And you could sort of argue that, Neil, you know, the, the, the crew of Apollo 13 also was in the one-tenth of 1% 1 <laughs> of what they added to what was already known. And, uh, and again, I'm saying this in, in a very provocative way to get attention and, you know, hopefully generate a humor. I mean, let, let, let's be realistic. The heroism, the bravery, the capability of these people is just incomprehensible um, for me. Yeah, and I say this joking just to make the point. <laughs> and one of my learnings is the people who get all the credit are the one tenth of one percent on either side, right? At the extremes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, you I guess that's our aspiration, Gene. We want to be one tenth <laughs> of one percent. Awesome. So before we revisit the space program, let's talk uh, about the concrete observable learning dynamics within the U.S. Naval Reactor Core. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so the background on that is that uh, coming out of World War II, a lot of people were enticed by the, uh, the potential of using fission, not in a destructive fashion, but in a productive fashion to create energy. The U.S. tasked uh, a guy named Hyman Rickover with leading the charge on figuring out how to do this in a meaningful fashion. And you know, it, it's funny because anecdotes about Rickover, and if you see uh, video of him, he comes across as a very aggressive, even condescending personality. But in, in, I think beneath that superficial layer was someone who had a fair amount of positive humility, because when he was tasked with uh, the challenge of building a program, his starting point was, I have no <laughs> idea what the answer is. And the only way to achieve the answer is to uh, as aggressively, as energetically as possible, find out what we don't know so that we can use that as uh, to orient ourselves towards where we should invent time and effort, invest time and effort. 
to figure out something new. And in, in my book, in, in chapter five of my book, I give these various examples from very, very early on in the program where Rick Over realized that his challenge as program leader wasn't the science and technology or necessarily the organization. It was about creating an organizational dynamic in which it was not only safe, but actually required for people to reveal things they discover, things they didn't understand as a, as a trigger to inquire further. Let's go through a couple of them. The ones that come to mind are uh, just how extensively he would model how important it is to be able to say, I don't know. And you gave an example of how he uh, presented himself in a class full of other... Right. So this story goes back to literally the first days of the program where Rickover took what was then must have been a small team to Oak Ridge, Tennessee to learn what had been discovered by the Manhattan Project people. <laughs> and Rickover at the time was a, a senior officer. He was a, a captain in 06 in the Navy, but he wasn't yet an admiral, wasn't a flag officer. And it's time for the first presentation. And uh, Rickover made point to be uh, first in the class, center seat, front row. As soon as the lecture started, his hand goes up to interrupt. To And when the instructor, with deference to Rickover's rank and age and seniority and whatnot, <laughs> asks him if he has a question, Rickover says, yeah, what the hell are you talking about? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm having a really hard time tracking you. So the, the instructor slows down, backs up, tries to re-explain it. And then minutes later, Rickover's hand goes up yet again. The guy says, oh, do you have another question? And Rickover says, no, it's the same damn question. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and this goes on several cycles, according to the accounts in the autobiography of one of his colleagues. And finally, the instructor loses any sense of deference towards rank and seniority and age. Because it's clear this is over your head. Perhaps you would like a tutorial this evening, which Rickover says, yeah, name the time and place. Anyway, the way this account goes in this book, The Rickover Effect, by a guy named Ted Rockwell, Rickover and his, his team go back to the room assigned for this tutorial. They get there uh, you know, punctually and discover that uh, every seat is already taken. <laughs> and the reflection this guy Rockwell has is that these other people who had uh, dutifully been taking notes and nodding their heads up in uh, sort of signs of acknowledgement that they were tracking what was going on, they also hadn't tracked the lecture in any meaningful fashion. They had just been uh, too ashamed to raise their hand and draw attention to themselves. And it's it kind of interesting how Rockwell explains this because he does it twice in his book. First time he says, you know, wow, you know, at first I was, I thought here was uh, the captain and later the admiral so humble and self-secure that he was willing to raise his hand and admit he didn't know. And uh, man, you know, that was really a good example for the rest of us. And later on in the biography, autobiography of this book, uh, The Rickover Effect, Rockwell then reflects and he says, you know, come to think of it, there was no way that Rickover was stumped <laughs> by what was being discussed. He was the smartest guy in the room, and plus he was obsessive compulsive, and he probably had reviewed all the literature and material available about the topic. And there's no doubt that he understood that topic uh, better than the instructor himself. And so Rockwell starts reflecting in the book about why Rick Ova would have uh, been um, raising his hand and interrupting. And he comes to the conclusion that Rick Over realized that he was now tasked with something that was nowhere near any dominant architecture, no architecture <laughs> at all, right? This wasn't a case of managing a program where people could come in and just go demonstrate their ability to execute already established routines. Everything had to be invented. And the um, obstacle to invention was the admittance of uh, ignorance. Yeah. And so um, 
this guy Rockwell starts reasoning through what Rick was going through Rickover's head. And he said, yeah, yeah, he was tasked with an important undertaking, you know, build a, a fission-based reactor. And that meant, you know, the invention of new science and new technology and new policies, procedures, training, contracting, et cetera. But he said, you know, Rickover, when he was really thinking about the most fundamental obstacle to success, it was people's unwillingness and hesitation to admit they didn't know. And so day one, he took opportunity to say, this is how we run the program. If you don't know the answer or you're having a problem, you raise your hand and draw attention to the facts so that we can get together and come up with uh, a better solution than the one we have. I, I love it. And so to use the language of structure and dynamics, by doing that, I do agree that Rickover is really modeling, causing signals to be amplified Yes, to a degree that it normally never would without that uh, constant modeling of behaviors that he wanted. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and there's another example that I, I think uh, the example you gave was, you know, report when there's too much radiation, but also he wanted to know if there's too little radiation, oh, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> that we don't care about just one side of the, the variance curve, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, so th th this is another uh, anecdote that's in this book, uh, The Rickover Effect by this engineer, Ted Rockwell. And uh, Rockwell describes an experience where he's trying to internalize Rickover's insistence that we make strong declaration of what we believe to be true, in large part to see where we're wrong. And uh, Rockwell is describing the first set of tests on the shielding that would go around the reactor to protect the rest of the ship and the crew and all of that. And uh, he describes how his uh, engineering team is so excited because they'd worked so hard on the design and the construction of this prototype that was going to be tested. And uh, they're just ready to, you know, push the button and get yeah. this thing to run. And around it is laced all sorts of sensors to measure emissions and escapes and that sort of thing. And he too is excited and he's about to authorize and say, all right, let's run the thing. And he says, wait, 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 wait a second. <laughs> you know, why did we design the shielding? And the answer is because we've been, you know, the answer back is because, uh, We've been told what acceptable emissions are, and we've designed the shielding to keep emissions below that. And he says, all right, well, all right, let's say the, that acceptable level, and you know, I don't remember what it is, but let's say it's 10. He says, you know, how do we react to an 11? And he says, oh, well, you know, Ted, everyone understands that. You know, if the goal is 10 and the acceptable limit is 10, then 11 is bad news, you know. So, yeah, hey, all right, that's got that. He says, well, if we've got sensors and we've designed to 10, how do we react to nine? Now, you think about how most of us react to nine. Nine is better than 10. So we would celebrate that. Mission accomplished. Look at that. We're so smart <laughs> that not only did we accomplish 10, we have like secret smart. Not, not only like the known smart, which is which got us to 10, but the secret smart, which gave us that turbocharge <laughs> um, push to nine. And um, Rockwell challenged back and he said, well, did we any of us design for a nine? No, no, no. We designed for a 10. And he said, so what does nine actually tell us? And where he got the team to concede was that nine wasn't a sign of super smart, a turbo smart, a secret smart, that a nine was an indication that they had gotten something wrong, that you know there was something they didn't understand about the, the reaction itself, the way the materials uh, fissioned, uh, the materials that surrounded it, et cetera, et cetera. There was something they didn't, simply didn't understand. Maybe the emission actually was nine, but it was designed to be 10. Uh, maybe there was something about the sensor. There was something wrong that uh, the sensor read a nine and not a 10. And uh, th this was in part uh, what Rockwell 
use it as, as an example to illustrate this discipline of engineering, that every action is taken based on belief. And if we want to get better and better, quicker and quicker, we have to do is make sure that we articulate what we believe to be true, that this set of, this type of design will achieve a 10, so that if we're wrong, whether it's an 11 or a 9, right. we know where we were wrong and where we need to inquire further. Gene here. I want to take a moment to reflect on the things that Steve is saying and his implications on coding, on things like blameless postmortems. So in the context of coding, a lot of us are familiar with assertions and things like test-driven development. Assertion statements will cause a program to fail when things that we assert aren't true, such as a certain variable being more than zero or that a string is not empty. Similarly, in test-driven development, we write the tests before we write the code. So we start with the test failing and we'll continue to iterate and refactor until the tests finally pass. Both involve automating the tests of what we think reality looks like and give us rapid and very visible feedback if they're not actually true. I find assertion statements to be astonishing the more I think about it. What it seems to suggest is it's better to have the program fail right away than to continue as the difference between reality as imagined and reality as it actually exists keep getting bigger. To use Spears' language, we want to constantly test our assumptions early, quickly, and frequently, where we have the strongest link between cause and effect and have the ability to deflect bigger problems. The work that John Ospa has been doing on studying how organizations respond to incidents and outages is equally fascinating to me. The reason that he's so focused on studying outages is that these outages and incidents are important because they disrupt business operations. But what dazzles me about John's work is that he believes by understanding how organizations handle incidents, we get incredible clues on how organizations learn. He asks of senior leaders, how often are teams reading the post-incident reviews? How often are those post-incident reviews being read from people outside their team? How often are these reports being referenced in code fixes? All these questions help us understand to what extent are we changing how daily work is being performed by everyone in the organization? So whether we're talking about things in code or things in our organization, the reason is the same. We do this because the more we rapidly learn, the more we can rapidly and decisively outlearn our competition. Okay, back to the interview. I don't think we can leave this topic without first demonstrating to what extent the Rickover program achieved its goals. You have a wonderful comparison between the U.S. Naval Reactor Program versus the adversary at the time, for much right. of that time, what was the Soviet Navy. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, the consequences are fantastic, right? So the U.S. was, quote-unquote, first to market with an atomic-powered submarine, the Nautilus, in 1955, underway under nuclear power compared to the Soviets who lagged. So, yeah, well, yeah, the Soviets, you know, they were recovering from the Second World War, et cetera. But uh, over the, uh, the following decades, the Soviet Union threw tremendous resources into its own submarine community, its own submarine program. And, you know, maybe they got a late start, but they, they certainly had opportunity to catch up. What we know about the Soviet experience with nuclear power onboard submarines is that they repeatedly, regularly had disasters. You know, every year or two, having a failure on board that cost the crew its lives and cost the Navy its ship and caused the environment all sorts of degradation. And in comparison, this Rickover effect and this discipline of engineering, this constant aggressive pursuit of seeing what we don't know so we can get smarter and better. The U.S. Navy experienced the nuclear power has been that since 1955, it's been perfect. 
that there's been no reactor failure that's caused environmental damage, no reactor failure that's caused human harm. And, you know, is it hundreds of ships since the Nautilus? You know, crews which could never have been influenced directly by Admiral Rickover because they were born long after his passing, and uh, they still continue to rack up a, uh, a perfect record. Oh, this is great. So we talked about these exemplars of Toyota, of the U.S. space flight program through Mercury, Gemini, and uh, Apollo. Apollo. We yeah. talked about the U.S. Naval Reactor Corps, and they set up a structure and dynamics so that uh, weak signals are amplified. Let's talk about yep. one example where these weak signals got suppressed. Uh, you and I, we were talking about a uh, Harvard Business Review article by Dr. Amy Edmondson and uh, Dr. Michael Roberto, Dr. Richard Bomer, about what they called the two types of programs, experimental culture, which uh, we think was embodied by Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, versus a standardized culture, which is probably uh, best embodied by the U.S. space shuttle program, where they talk about how so many weak signals were suppressed by the system, and that led to you know, a horrendous loss of life and uh, tragic outcomes. Can you talk about what are the conditions uh, or, uh, that lead to signals being suppressed and uh, maybe in the context of the space shuttle program? Yeah, so I think, you know, credit to NASA for both programs is the incredible inventiveness of the scientists, engineers, and the incredible bravery of the people who agreed to uh, sit atop these rockets and be slingshotted into outer space. It's insane, right? I mean, you know, we all, you know, not all of us, but many of us dream of being astronauts. But given the chance, would we actually accept the invitation to sit on top of one of those things? I think most of us, even given the opportunity, would shy away. My impression of the Apollo program is that it accepted a challenge of sending a man to the moon and having him return safely to the Earth, for which there was no answer. And if you're given, and this was true of Admiral Rickover also, and I think the senior leaders at Toyota back in the 50s. They had a problem for which no answer ex existed. And so when they got into the business of defining their own personal objectives and what it meant for them to have accomplishment, accomplishment had to be discovery, right? And lessons learned because they were starting for which there was no meaningful answer. And they were asked to come up with a solution and a solution that actually worked well in practice. And so when the folks at NASA in, in the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo era had to justify what they were trying to do. Yes, there was a time, right, end of decade. There was a, a standard, man to the moon and back safely. But when they had to explain budgets, I'm willing to bet, and I, I'll bet that if you go back and look at congressional testimony and whatever else and memos and whatnot, the justification is we need time and money to learn something which currently we don't know. All right, now let's move that forward. You get to the space shuttle which by its title is an operational technology. It's not an experimental technology. It's not like a space shuttle X, X1, X2, X15, X33, X35, right? It's a, it's a shuttle. And a shuttle implies that the measure of success with the shuttle is that it shuttles things back and forth. And once you start framing things as uh, being a shuttle and, and putting standards of accomplishment and successes to how many, how many loads did you shuttle back and forth? Right. It creates these pressures for operational tempo. In fact, and, in, uh, the, start, uh, yeah. in that paper, it says NASA, they were promoting to Congress the space shuttle as a cheap and reusable spacecraft. Frequent, on time, these are 
the words, the values of the spatial program, to, to your point. Right. Right. And look, look Gene, it, it requires a very deep research, which I've not done and nor have I read, to understand why they felt compelled to have a manned spacecraft to find that way. Because we're back in the era when if you want to send something into space, which doesn't involve a human, you don't send a human, you send a rocket and a robot, right? Launch a satellite, launch an experiment, whatever else it is, you don't send a person. Why NASA felt that manned flight was important, and maybe there was some um, sort of agenda there in understanding how people behaved in space to go back to the moon, long distance, whatever it is. They felt they had to justify themselves in terms of this low-cost load launching. Right. And, and in fact, you said a yeah. great example. In the early space program, they would send test pilots who are basically signing up for you know high-risk endeavors, whereas right. in the space shuttle program, we sent up teachers. It's just showing to what extent we believed what the risk was to send humans into space. That's right. Yeah. You know, and all, all of that stuff, whether you call it a shuttle or explain its purpose is uh, low cost, high frequency delivery of payloads into space, or you put teachers and once upon a time astronauts, but now old senators on board. What you're saying is we got the sucker figured out. And, and once you have something figured out, your deliverable no longer is discovery. Your deliverable is uh, repetition. And so connect the dots about how that leads to suppression of weak signals. For example, how we dealt with, you know, foam strikes upon launch that led to, you know, these tragic events. I just mentioned foam strikes. This refers to the 2003 explosion of the space shuttle Columbia. In the HBR article written by Dr. Edmondson and colleagues, the authors describe how NASA managers spent some two weeks downplaying the seriousness of a piece of foam breaking off the left side of the shuttle at launch, which had fatal consequences 16 days later when the Columbia destroyed itself as it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. The article describes the two years the author spent studying the incident and talks about the culture where these weak signals were lost in the system and ultimately prevented fruitful action that could have saved the shuttle. If your goal is to discovering things that allow you to get to the moon and back safely, and your starting point is the, the self-admittance that you don't know how to do that, then your daily deliverable is uh, something learned. Hmm. And you can imagine in the early days of NASA that, uh, yeah, there was a lot of talk about we built this, we ran this, we tested that, but uh, it, was, it was all in service to the thing we learned. When you start shifting your priorities to the physicality of what got moved, what got made, then signals that say, hey, Gene, we're having a problem, run up against the pressure mm. to say, yeah, yeah, but you have to launch or you have to ship or you have to make, you have to deliver. And, and we see this suppression of a weak signal in so many settings where there's this increased dominance of operational tempo as uh, the requirement, whether it's the operational tempo to see patients and see patients and see patients and consequently work around problems that actually impede the seeing of patients, or it's the um, operational tempo to uh, launch uh, space shuttles to maintain some very rough uh, approximation of what was originally promised in terms of cheap and frequent, or it's the pressures of operational tempo to deliver new models of things into the marketplace, even though we don't haven't quite worked out all the bugs. All, all that pressure to uh, adhere to the operational tempo allows us to be more and more accepting of things which once were not acceptable. 
In fact, uh, the, the, the normalization of deviance, right? The foam strike is okay because it's happened before. And so therefore that validates the notion that it can be safely ignored. Yeah. So I, I think to be even more charitable. So, you know, I think Diane Vaughn uh, popularized that term normalization of deviance. Well, it wasn't designed to do that, but it did it and it no ill consequence. Oh, it was designed not to do that. It wasn't designed to do that, but it did it again. It's like, oh, well, I guess it must be okay. And I, I don't think Dr. Vaughn meant it in such a sloppy fashion. I think what it was, was that you have to think about the other side, the offsetting pressure for to maintain an operational tempo, which, um, yeah, we didn't design it to do that. It went wrong and we know it's wrong, but we have this operational tempo to which we have to adhere. And in order to adhere, and now we have a dilemma, either we can come back and examine and study and investigate and experiment around this thing which went wrong, or we can keep to the operational tempo, but we can't do both. And once we're in that, the face of that dilemma, then it takes a tremendous amount of self-discipline to say, no, no, of the two alternatives, I'm going to pick the one where discovery is the output and not parts made or launches completed. Uh, let's end with one last very relevant contemporary example, which is around the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, yeah. You have this great example of another example of a system that was likely where it wasn't safe to tell bad news. And you talked about the setup of the surveillance network post-SARS, where uh, China yeah. at one point in time had a phenomenal network to be able to detect uh, outbreaks. And yet uh, that sensor surveillance networks went silent. Can you, can you talk about some you know, of your speculations on why it's so uh, about that and why it's so important that we create a system where it's safe to tell bad news? Yeah, so I, I think this issue of operational tempo as the, a phrase that captures the, the pressure to keep going comes in. So what I understand, and again, let, let, let's put my expertise in some context here. It's based upon reading one article which appeared in the New York Times about a week or two ago. So yeah, I'm not exactly the world's expert, world authority on this. But according to the New York Times, so we're getting closer to the, the world authority on this. They said that after the, the SARS pandemic or epidemic, that China didn't want to get caught flat-footed again by a highly infectious uh, disease. And so they created the infrastructure that if they were starting to be growing hotspots of infection locally, news of that could get elevated quickly towards uh, central authorities so they could start making decisions. You know, for example, you're going to quarantine, stop transportation, provide resources, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it makes perfect sense, right? Which is, you know, as we understand from the exponential way in which disease propagates, seeing something early and containing it is of huge, huge, gigantic benefit. All right. Well, all, all good in theory. But then you have the local officials. Now, a local official is tasked with what? He's not tasked with discovering that things are going wrong. And the whole reason... <laughs> Um, you have local officials is to make sure that things are going right. The buses run on time. The trash is picked up. People are getting to school. No one is going hungry. People are staying healthy and well. According to the article, what happened was as healthcare professionals started recognizing the presence of this highly infectious, potentially uh, dangerous disease and started reporting it, the local officials through whom they had a report 
Like, nah, 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 must be an outlier. Nah, nah, that's an aberration. Nah, nah, you know, that's the exception to the rule. Everything else is working fine. And, and, and you know, look, the, the cynical answer would be, oh, you know, that's, you know, heartless, that's heartless bureaucrats who are just trying to protect their own turf and protect their own reputations. Yes and no. Those quote-unquote heartless bureaucrats were exactly the same people who were responsible for making sure things were working well. Mm -hmm. And uh, they probably wanted things to work well. And they probably were ill-equipped by both uh, temperament and position and authority and whatever else to respond to things not working well. I, and, and Gene, this is just thinking out loud. Yep. Is, you know, it does make us wonder if uh, news of COVID got suppressed at the local official level because it ran counter to the, the pressure they operation of daily life, right? That's right. That's right. You know, here in the U.S., where we're you know a month or two or three behind China, are our reporting mechanisms through similar channels, which uh, would be forced into a very difficult dilemma to report problems when, in fact, their job is to more often than not deliver good news. Right. So, yeah, it's something to worry about. <laughs> Well, Steve, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate every interaction that we've had, how much I've learned from you and how much I value all these working sessions that we have. And I'm looking forward to being able to share more of what I've learned and what we're working on together in the weeks, months to come. So thank you so much for the time today. And I'm, I'm so excited that you were able to share so many of your unique perspectives with not just me, but everyone else. So can you tell everyone how to reach you? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, first, Gene, before I do that, let me say thank you. These conversations have been very much to my benefit, and I'm delighted they're to your benefit, and you're welcome for that. But thank you for the fact that they're to my benefit. You know, back to you know a basic value you and I both espouse, and I hope we live to to some extent, is that uh, you don't know what you're wrong about, and you don't know what you have to fix and improve until you actually make a de declaration about what you think is right. And then find out that, in fact, you're not. And, you know, the generosity you've had of time and the uh, enthusiasm you've had of interest in talking about such topics has given me the opportunity to, well, it's been forcing to uh, say what I think is true and uh, create the opportunity to find out that it's not and then uh, cycle back and make it at least truer, if not uh, truly true. <laughs> so thank you for that. In terms of reaching me, a couple of ways. If uh, people want to find me, LinkedIn, Steve Spear, I'm there somewhere. Email steve at hvellc.com, short for uh, high velocity edge llc.com. And, uh, you know, one last thing I just want to plug since you've given me the opportunity, you know, with the several mentions of my book is that, uh, you know, one of the things we've tried to do is give opportunity for people who uh, have problems to call them out to those who need to know. But solving for the problem of workforces that are distributed and experts that are uh, centralized and remote. The theme of this work has been in order to learn and learn at high velocity, you have to see problems in order to solve them. We created a product, uh, C to Solve, and we have a website, you know, www.c2solve.com. So, you know, visit us there and see what we got. Awesome. Thank you so much, Steve, and to be continued. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Up next will be Dr. Steven Spears' DevOps Enterprise Summit presentations, both from 2019 and 2020, where he talks about the need to create a rapid learning dynamic, as well as how to create them. The 2019 presentation talks about many of the case studies we talked about today, but in more detail. 
And in 2020, he talks about one of the most remarkable and historic examples of creating a dynamic learning organization at scale, which was in the U.S. Navy at the end of the 19th century at the confluence of two unprecedented changes. One was in the underlying technologies, which you found in ships, and in the strategic mission that they were in service of. As usual, I'll add my reflections and reactions to those presentations. If you enjoyed today's interview of Steve, I know you'll enjoy both of those presentations as well.